Welcome, everybody, to Ramdas Here and Now, and I'm Raghu Marcus. This talk from Ramdas hails back to August 1989. And um, I'm going to call this talk Implications of a True Spiritual Journey. As in it, he talks about how we, many's a time on our day-to-day practices, our spiritual practices, our spiritual perspective on our lives, we run through things a little bit on a rote basis, or we get sometimes, and he didn't really say this, but I would say, and talking about myself, uh, um, very much so, uh, that we get a little blasé, shall we say, about the the uh, work, quote-unquote, spiritual work that we're doing. Uh, but he talks about uh, we keep closing off our door of entry, as we might call it, because of the fear of the implications of a true spiritual journey. And... Um, we, we just think about we've we've embarked on a game that is much more profound than we usually think we are on. We're ready to slip by and make everybody feel good. We're all on the spiritual path. Isn't that nice? Of course, I'm giving it a very negative accent, and uh, it's a bit judgmental, but still... I think uh, this talk really emphasizes uh, actually through the metaphor of the Bhagavad Gita. This is a wonderful uh, metaphor that Ramdas is using here. And I think it's based on a book by Swami Vivekananda, who uh, wrote a commentary on the Gita. And it's a book that I want to get. I'm going to have to ask him, and I'll put it up on the on the website uh, or on the podcast page uh, once I find it. Because uh, and Ramdas did really great work around the Gita. Of course, those lectures at Naropa uh, are some of the greatest talks that he's given. It was all around putting into practice to daily life uh, the tenets of the Gita. Um, so. Basically here, I, I think Vivekananda, the metaphor is that what Arjun, Arjuna is facing, and it's this facing an army which happens to be his relatives, and it's an army of desires, not just evil ones or dark ones. He finds in himself these things which he has to slay in order to be with God. So that's the metaphor. Um, there's a, his desire for harmless enjoyment, to shine in society, to lead secure and comfortable lives. Um, and the call of the family, uh, there's various ideals, and, and it talks about under the leadership of various ideals. We are taking the field against the ideals that are represented by the call of the family. The prestige of habit and established custom. I mean, we would, I certainly recognize many of these things immediately. Patriotism, 
devotion to religion or devotion to a particular spiritual path. Um, they, these also have been part of what takes you away from God, even though they served as guides and teachers in the past. Um, so this is uh, really... Um, a fantastic metaphor uh, that Ramdas really delves into uh, here. What does he say here? We desired kingdom, enjoyment, and pleasures must first lie dead on the field. Better to enjoy simple enjoyments than set out on a perilous path, a path to an as yet quite inconceivable goal, and of which the only certain thing is that it leads over the dead bodies of all that we hold dear in life. That is what he's talking about when he talks about the implications of a true spiritual journey. And he also uses uh, a a quote from Don Juan, which kind of uh, puts this into into a very uh, plain-spoken... um, way of understanding uh, this particular uh, metaphor. A man of knowledge has no honor, no dignity, no family, no name, no country, but only life to be lived. And under these circumstances, his only tie to his hum- to his fellow humans is his controlled folly. You'll have to read Don Juan's book to get what controlled folly means of a warrior. Um, uh, let's see, it goes from here. There's a, a, a one part of this, uh, maybe two-thirds of the way through this uh, excerpt of this talk, he 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 actually does an exercise, which would be great for us all to do. We should do it together at one point. Uh, he says, take a moment and experience yourself in the center of a mandala, a web of your own attachments. And that's the web of what the opposing army is. Um, um, just imagine the beings that uh, that keep that that really support your self identity that keeps you busy being who you are right it's it's the contract that you have with all of these beings could be parents spouse employees employers children it could be debts promises pets that's a great one Feel the complex web that you find yourself in the middle of. When we start to think of these things, boy, don't we feel the weight of it is the weight of what Arjun was facing, that army. And that is why Krishna told him, you must take these actions without attachment. Do your dharma. And uh, and that's what is related to Don Juan, who... I remember in one of his books, he said, you have to kill your mother and your father, meaning you have to, to be able to become a complete warrior is to detach yourself 
from, as Ramdas puts it here, this web of attachments. So powerful stuff, eh? This is, uh, and and he really talks about himself in this and how he easily falls into the trap of the spiritual path being a nice way of living and uh, kind of the ego takes over a little bit. Uh, that's a whole other talk that uh, I'm sure Ramdas has done that we can talk about how the ego takes over uh, the spiritual relationship that, that uh, we have with our lives and makes it its own. And, you know, that's just another, um, another supporting uh, factor for meditative practice or practice of any kind that allows us to connect with that deeper part of ourselves ourself that is um, more fearless, more courageous, and more committed to not just changing our insides for ourselves, but for being able to be of some help to our people who are close to, as well as people we don't know. And uh, so, his terrific talk here. And again, I'm going to call it Implications of a True Spiritual Journey. And uh, I want to thank everybody for the support. Again, for Ramdas.org, Love, Serve, Remember Foundation. Please do continue that support. You can do it through the podcast. Don't forget MindPod Network, where Ramdas's podcast also resides, alongside of our family of friends. Jack Cornfield and Krishna Das, Sharon Salzberg, Lama Surya Das, Joseph Goldstein. I mean, it's just a, and of course, what I do with David on mind rolling. It's a, it's a fantastic destination, with rich, with all kinds of content that hopefully will help everyone day to day. And uh, go to ramdas.org and uh, um Look out for some terrific stuff coming this way in the fall. We have our new book coming out, a new film coming out, and um, just a lot of great things. Again, thanks for, for the support, everybody. And we'll look to see you next week on Ramdas here and now. This was written, spoken by Swami uh, Chetananda. 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 When you are with someone you love very much, you can talk and it is pleasant. But the reality is not in the conversation. It is simply in being together. Meditation is the highest form of prayer. Inner in meditation, you are so close to God that you don't need to say a thing. It's just great to be together. Each time I do retreats or workshops, I sit with Neem Karoli Baba, my guru, and I ask him what I'm doing. And what is it he has in mind? And I hear back things like, 
love everyone and tell the truth. Okay? How will I do that for two days? I've been teaching um, retreats and workshops now for 20 years as Ramdas. And I started them when I came back from India. And I was filled with the Spirit of God. And over the years, I've continued to teach issues around spiritual awakening, which is why we're here together. And what I usually do is I prepare my material and I get up and I'm charming and charismatic for God. <laughs> and um, I teach uh, Dharma. And everybody nods appreciatively and goes away and comes back. After about uh, all these 20 years of, of this, when I came around to this year to teach, I took out my notes, which were now sort of yellow around the edges, and they were very old, and I realized that a good chunk of my audience, they know all my material at least as well as I do. <laughs> I just have to say number 42 and everybody laughs, <laughs> or Mark of Madness, or the policeman, the state trooper on the New York Thruway. <laughs> See, that was a good one. <laughs> and I thought, can I bear to do this once more? I mean, can the group bear it? I mean, we all say, well, they're golden oldies, isn't, isn't that wonderful? And, and everybody feels solace in coming together for us to say the same things to each other again so you can be sure that nothing will really upset you because you've already arranged that it wouldn't since you came to see me and you know I'll give old material so it's perfectly safe well if you go see Abdul Saeed he might say something that'll shake you to your roots you know so I'm safe so I thought well maybe this year I ought to change things around a little bit so I've taught two retreats thus far this summer one in Oregon at Brighton Bush and one in New Mexico at Lama. And in each of them what I did was I, um, I asked the group to meditate and consider what topics they would like to explore together. And each of them to come up with two topics. And then when they had meditated upon this, uh, I got them to write them down and we took the lists and we put them on the board and we organized them into 12 groups of overlapping interests and then we had the groups meet about maybe 150 at each retreat so it's maybe 12 14 and they meditated together and they circle shared and then they discussed why they were interested in this topic and then they came up with a series of questions and then they asked me these questions. 
And they'd sit, the group that was presenting would sit in front of me and everybody else would listen. And that group would come and we did two groups a day for six days and that group would come and they'd ask me questions. So I no longer had to use my material. I just had to respond to their questions. And um, the thing that surprised me was that the, the questions that they came up with were primarily um, psychosocial in nature. They were not spiritual. They were not concerned with any obvious spiritual dimensions, although we could assume they were concerned with spiritual perspective about psychological issues, but they were, well, here are the list. The group was interested in relationships, as you might imagine. Um, death, you could say that's spiritual. So. They were addiction, lust and greed. They were interested in work, burnout, livelihood, life transitions. Social action, fear, and anger. They were also interested, all, in fairness, in integrating planes of consciousness, interested in developing the witness. They were interested in rituals, in chemically induced states, I guess you could call that spiritual. I used to, I guess I still do. <laughs> so when I listened to who was out here asking me questions, I expected them to ask, would you discuss how do I do a spiritual practice? Would you help me understand how I can know God better? But that wasn't what was in the consciousness of the group. And I either had to throw out their questions or say, okay, I am your servant. This is what you want to know. This is what I will share with you. Because I'm an old psychologist and I can unwind that stuff too and be psychodynamic-y. I thought, I wonder if I've been fooling myself all these 20 years as to who we are, even who I am. Maybe I'm basically a psychodynamic social action person who's just got this thin veneer of spiritual on top of it <laughs> that charms everybody and gives it a new twist. I mean, I'm a kind of a, it's, it's the, a new age slant. And I'm really just an old psychologist. Now, um,
I have a sense that the, the spiritual journey that you and I are on that brings us together is so unfathomable that we end up grabbing hold of what we can grab hold of and we keep slipping back into our minds all the time and making the world real and we keep closing off our door of entree or exit as you might call it because I think that there is a very deep rooted fear in most of us about the implications of a true spiritual journey In the Bhagavad Gita, which is the, um, one of the sacred texts in India, as most of you know, as you probably recall, in the uh, first chapter, um, it's the night before a battle. And it's the battle between um, the Pandavas and the Kuravas. And Arjuna is the head of the Pandavas. Those are the good guys. They are the Dharma bearers. And uh, the Kuravas, the cousins, are the ones that have misused their trust and they have lied and they have acted in ways that are not dharmic. So this is a war about dharma. And because they fight in very civilized ways in India at that time, they fight until sunset and then they stop and start fighting the next morning. This is the night before the battle is to begin and Arjuna says to his charioteer, drive down between the opposing armies so I can sort of get a sense of what the scene is about. His charioteer happens to be Krishna. Krishna is God who has taken the form of a charioteer in order to help Arjuna out. So Krishna drives the horses down between the opposing armies and stops in the middle. And Arjuna looks at the armies and he looks over at the opposing army and these after all are his cousins. They're not only his cousins but there are some of his teachers, his preceptors, his uncles. There are people that he loves. And he's about to enter into battle to kill those people. He's doing it for Dharma, for the way, for the truth. And he's so despondent at that point that he takes his spear and he throws it down to the ground and he says, I'm just not going to fight. I won't fight Krishna. He said, what would be the value even if I win, I lose. 
Now, that story is many, many levels of reality, and one of them is the metaphor for spiritual, the spiritual journey. <clears throat> Swami Vivekananda speaks about this moment in the following way. Arrayed against him, Arjuna finds the army of his desires. The army of his desires. It's the opposing side. Not just the desires that are conventionally considered evil, but many others too. In other words, he's finding on the other side those things in himself which he has to slay in order to be with God. You hear that? You hear what the issue is? But many others too. The desire for harmless enjoyment. How about that one? The desire to shine in society surrounded by friends. The desire to lead a secure and comfortable life. How about that one? These and many more have taken the field against the soul under the leadership of various ideals. The call of the blood, family. The prestige of habit and established custom. We all do it. I mean, everybody wants security, don't they? Everybody wants an IRA. Health insurance. Don't you want health insurance? I want health insurance. I mean, doesn't every reasonable person want health insurance? What are you talking about? What does that got to do with God? The glittering ideals of family affection. Patriotism. Devotion to religion. These also have eaten the food of the Karavas, meaning they've also been part of what takes you away from God. Even though they served as guides and teachers in the past. For Arjuna, what will be the worth of victory if those for whose sake we desire kingdom enjoyments and pleasures must first lie dead on the field? Better to enjoy simple enjoyments then set out on a perilous path, a path to an as yet quite inconceivable goal, and of which the only certain thing is that it leads over the dead bodies of all that we hold dear in life. It leads over the dead bodies of all we hold dear in life. I've been faced now and then with that confrontative moment, that, that moment of choice, when I have seen that I'm embarked on a game that is much more profound than the one I usually think I'm on. I'm ready to slip by and make everybody feel good as if we're all on the spiritual path. Isn't that nice? 
because I don't very often see the, that, the choice. The one I've described to many of you before was a f five, four or five years ago when I spent some months in a, in a yekta, in a, in a monastery in Rangoon, Burma, sitting in meditation. And I got so deep into the meditative practice. I mean, it was from three in the morning till 11 at night every day. And you were all alone in your cell. And it was very intense practice. And I got so far into it. And then after two months, the first month I was hoping, you know, a telegram would come that would save me. <laughs> I was trying to figure out a way to get out of this situation that I had righteously gotten myself into. And then by the second month, I had gone through my dysentery and all my stuff and dysentery of my mind. <clears throat> and I was really quieting down and I started to get into extraordinary altered states of consciousness that were very subtle. And I was beginning to see my mind create the universe and understand how the mind works. And at that point, a telegram arrived. It's just the end of the second month, and it said, it was from my stepmother, and she said, um, I'm sorry to disturb your meditation, but um, I've, they found that I have cancer and that I'm going to be operated on in five days. And she was the caretaker of my father. And she was a wonderful woman, and we were very close, the three of us. So here I am sitting on the other side of the world with a telegram that says in five days she's going to have surgery, realizing that this must be completely shaking the foundations of my family's life. Now when it arrives, I read it and I have an emotional reaction arise which my mind is so silent that it watches the emotion arise and says, ah, emotion, okay? In other words, instead of, oh my God, there is, oh my God, ah, oh my God. In other words, there's many levels of awareness at that moment. So I take the telegram and I go to my teacher. Sayada Upandita. And I said, Sayadaw, I've received this telegram and through the translator, he says, what does it say? And I read what it says. And he looked at me and he said, and I said, so I'll have to leave. And he looked at me directly and he said, don't go. Don't go. Don't go back to your family when they're in need. He said, you're doing very profound spiritual practices. And there is a chance that you could extricate yourself from the illusion enough in this lifetime to help many people get free of suffering. If you go back now, you just help them. Don't go.
How is that different from Arjuna? Can I walk across the bodies of my stepmother and my father to get enlightened for the good of all beings? Is it worth it? Can I, a good Jewish boy from Boston, reject my entire family tradition to do that? In the Jewish family, when the son is needed by the father, you go. And I looked at Sayadaw Upandita and I said, I'm sorry, I have to go. I saw what he was saying, I felt what he was saying, I even felt the truth of what he was saying, and I still had to go. And he, he and I both looked at me with poignancy. <laughs> can you hear this issue? I mean, is this too heavy duty, or can you hear it? Is anybody confused? Or... In India, sadhus, wandering spiritual renunciates, often have the shraddha, the funeral service, in which their family, it's like sitting shiva, it's in which the family acknowledges that the, that the being is dead to the family, so they can go on with their spiritual work. And again, just something you're familiar with, the words of Don Juan in Carlos Castaneda's books. He's talking about the person of knowledge. And he uses him, so um, I would use her. She knows that her life will be over altogether too soon. She knows that she, as well as everybody else, is not going anywhere. She knows because she sees that nothing is more important than anything else. In other words, a woman of knowledge has no honor, no dignity, no family, no name, no country, but only life to be lived. And under these circumstances, her only tie to her fellow humans is her controlled folly. In other words, a woman of knowledge has no honor, no dignity, no family, no name, no country. Just take a moment now and experience yourself as sitting at the center of a mandala or circle and consider the web of your own attachments the web of what the opposing army is. Look at the beings with whom you have some kind of contract that, you, that keeps you busy being who you are. Parents, 
children, spouses, lovers, employers, employees, friends, teachers, students. Debts, promises, animals, pets, feel the, the complex web that you have created, and now we'll talk about which you that is, but that you are part of, let's put it that way, that you find yourself in the middle of, let's, let's not lay responsibility, you find yourself in the middle of. Now imagine, ask yourself, what could happen that would be strong enough to sever all of those ties? Just sever them. One that would probably do most of it is death. So now let me ask you to do something else since we're going to just go out this first day. We'll use it all up this morning. Let me ask you now to imagine your own death. Now, I don't care how you died. That's up to you. That's not what's important. That's just melodrama. But now you're dead. You just died. Now think, first of all, run through all the minds of people that are going to react to that. They just heard you died. Take a look at all the things that are left incompleted. Bills unpaid, letters unanswered, drawers you never cleaned out. Get it all. Just now there's a whole web that you create that you saw before, except now you're not in the center of it anymore. Pull yourself, pluck yourself right out of the center of that web and see what happens to the web. You can run through the memorial services, the funeral, the burning, the whatever, the crying, the talking, the gossiping, the telephone calls, the... What people are saying about you. She was such a, wasn't he a,
Now watch how, like you drop a, pedal, a pebble into the middle of a clear pond, it makes waves and then after a while it all quiets down. Watch and see, just watch, let your mind project outward how long it's going to take before you disappear into a few nice thoughts now and then. Some old pictures, old yellow, oh remember her? Wasn't her name, um, I could, I knew her as well as I knew. Can you do this? And then the pond is clear again. And you are no longer on this plane of existence. And the whole web, the papers were burned or given away. My father died last September. And my father was a, um, he was a very organized person. He was a lawyer. And he had files of everything. I mean, letters I sent to him from prep school were filed under rich prep school, 19, you know. He had files, and then he had files that described the files. And every piece of equipment he had bought, like hi-fi things back in the 40s, he had the manuals all cataloged. There were shelves of catalogs. There were pictures, because he was a photographer. There were pictures and pictures and pictures and albums and albums and albums. There was stuff. There were antiques and beautiful thises and thats. And there was a house full of this stuff. And there he was, dead. And there I was, the executor. <laughs> and it was far out to take my father's entire reality, all of the stuff that he had invested, his money, all of it, and just see it for stuff. Beautiful, sweet stuff. And I didn't know what to do with all those files. I mean, I said to the grandchildren, do you want some files? <laughs> and they said, oh yeah. And I said, well, take a handful. And they, they went through and they said, who's so-and-so? I said, I don't know. And they took a few and they said, well, I think that's enough. And there were still boxes of them. And this was my father's reality. These were important to my father. But they were only important to my father. They were cases he had tried back in the 30s. Everybody was dead, including him now. 
And I found myself transporting huge boxes of files to the dump and throwing them into the fire at the dump. There was my father's stuff. Since my father was buried, since Jews you bury, not Buddhist Jews, but I mean, or Hindu Jews, but Jew Jews. <laughs> My stepmother, who converted, I, uh, I used her to fertilize an azalea bush. She, she was cremated. <laughs> See, like Dad's body, the question was, who would we put him next to, his first wife or second wife? You know, who's he going to spend the rest of his time with? If that's, I mean, that's bizarre. Since his second wife got burned, he ended up with his first wife. I, mean, I want you to appreciate the black humor of all of this, because it's just so totally bizarre from where I'm sitting. And one by one, I just stood, dissolved my father's life. And since a lot of those things were things I had grown up with, as, and as a little boy had this incredible value placed upon them, like there were antiques that I was told, now that one is very, he got that at a special, and that's worth, oh. So I brought in the antique dealers and I said, now that one is worth, I said, that's very old. And he took out a draw and he said, see those circular saw marks? He said, if it was that old, there wouldn't be those. <laughs> Terribly sorry. My father had been had. I mean, the whole thing came unglued, you know? I mean, there was my father's whole life just coming unglued. That's the story um, that um, it's actually in the uh, Omega catalog that on Stephen's course uh, this year, which says uh, it's the story of the monk who uh, holds the beautiful goblet and uh, the beautiful crystal goblet. And somebody says, uh, how can you have such a beautiful goblet? Are you, you know, aren't you attached to it? And he says, well, in my mind, it's already broken. It's already shattered. Because it's already shattered, then I enjoy it as a very precious and beautiful thing. You're already dead. You're already dead and forgotten. Now you're free to live.
This podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. We appreciate you listening and we appreciate all the support that you've given us. Please continue that support and donate at Ramdas.org. We can then continue to share what Ramdas has been sharing for all of these years. Thank you. Thank you.